disciples. This is an interesting chapter for the disciples. Back in verse 14 of the same chapter, they are introduced as apostles. They're introduced as apostles in that moment, which is the Lord's table, because Luke wants us to, to understand that the disciples are, are there for the inauguration, the announcement of the new covenant. This is where Jesus says, this is the new covenant, which is poured out in my blood. This is the new covenant of my blood. And so in that passage, Luke actually calls these disciples apostles. So this is a very interesting chapter because on one hand, it's sort of a high point. It's sort of the announcement. These are the guys. These are the church fathers. But on the other hand, it's actually, and I know this is saying a lot, because we, we, we all know the apostles appear stupid in many places, or the, the disciples appear stupid in many places in the Gospels. But this might be the train wreck. This might be the chapter where they appear at their lowest and most confused. Uh, just as a few highlights or lowlights, if you will, this is the passage where the disciples immediately after the Lord's table argue about who is the greatest, right? This is the passage where, in a very false bravado, they announce that they are willing to die for Jesus and then later scatter and abandon him. And this is the passage where they are in the presence of true greatness, true submission, true allegiance. Jesus is, is, is demonstrating all that is good and right about following the Father in Gethsemane, and they're asleep. Now, this idea of the men of the church being asleep has some parallels, especially as we think about marriage, especially as we think about what it means to be a man. This, this idea of believers being asleep in the presence of greatness is obviously translatable to everybody in this room. If you're a follower of Christ, it should come as no surprise to you to hear me say that in many ways you and I are a lot like these disciples in the presence of true greatness, yawning with complacency and apathy and so on and so forth. But this presentation of the disciples as church fathers, this idea that they are indeed the men of the church, and our approach to this passage asking questions about what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a husband? What does it mean to be a wife? What does it mean to be a woman? These sorts of questions, I think, are relevant in this moment as we consider whether or not the men of the church, the church meaning this modern church, are asleep like the men of this past a moment were asleep. Uh, there's a number of surveys that say that that's exactly what's happening in the modern church. The U.S. population is evenly split, right, between men and women. But there are 61% women in the church and only 39% men in the church. Uh, women, according to a, a pretty recent survey, actually, women are 100% more likely to be involved in some sort of formal discipleship than men. Uh, they're 57% more likely to participate in adult Sunday school. They're 56% more likely to hold a leadership position at the church. They're 54% more likely to participate in some kind of a devotional time or a quiet time. They're 30% more likely to read their Bibles. They're 30% more likely to attend church, so on and so forth. Uh, all of the statistics for the modern church are skewing female. So the idea to say that the men of the church are asleep is probably not a big stretch. And so the question is sort of, well, why can we learn anything from seeing these men asleep? These men of the church asleep. Can we learn anything? Can we understand anything? And I would say, absolutely. There's a few reasons why the disciples were asleep. And the first one is because of weariness. You know, Luke says that they were asleep for sorrow. Mark says that their eyes were very heavy. So when you combine the two, you have the picture of guys who were just plain worn out. You know, I don't think this gets talked enough about enough. I think men get beat up on quite a bit from the pulpit, often rightly so. But I don't think this idea of weariness gets brought up enough when we talk about our men. Guys, the truth is, is that one of the massive reasons why you may be asleep in a figurative term, is that you're just tired. You're just plain old weary. Isaiah 40 says that even youth, youth shall grow faint and be weary, and young men shall be exhausted. And there are, I see a lot of guys out here that aren't youths. Uh, if, if even, you're welcome, if even young men grow faint and weary, 
then, then, then we need to understand that this is just a category. This is just a category of our souls, a, a state of being that we need to be aware of. You know, this, this sort of this passage in First Thessalonians five is an operative kind of passage for me as I try to help people. It says in, in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, We urge you, brothers, listen to this, three categories. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. So three categories of people that you'll be dealing with and as you try to love them and care for them. The idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. And you need to understand where people are in order to be able to help them. You need to ask yourself, is this person just being idle? Is this person just being neglectful, like just, just lazy? Um, does this person have no desire to grow in godliness, no desire to wake up? But, but notice that two of the three categories have to do with some kind of weariness. So as Paul is trying to help people know how to deal with other people, how to help people help people, he says there's three categories you should be on, on the lookout for. People who are just stubborn and lazy and don't want to do it. But then there are two other categories you need to be mindful of. Those who are faint-hearted, those who are just emotionally drained, and those who are weak. Those just have some sort of difficulty in this particular moment. So I just want to introduce this idea without making it over-spiritual that one possible reason why the disciples fell asleep is that the disciples were tired. And I want to introduce that as a category for you men this, this morning. Just the category of weariness. The category of being tired. You see, the disciples were beat up. They'd been living out of a suitcase for three years. They were anxious. They saw their enemies closing in, Jesus' enemies closing in. They were confused. After all, they were walking around with the perfect God-man. Everything was confusing in one respect. And they were absolutely overwhelmed. Think about this way. Up till three years ago, these guys had fishing-related stresses. Like, the most stressful moments in their life were related to fishing. Right? Like, these guys are just tired. They're just weary. They're overwhelmed. They're anxious. They're confused. And so when Luke says they were asleep for sorrow, and Mark says that their eyes were very heavy, let's just understand there's this category of being, both men and women, of just being weary. And that it's important to understand that about one another as we love one another, as we encourage one another, as we help one another, that sometimes we just get weary. In 1 Kings chapter 19, there's a story of Elijah. He's the mighty prophet. He just had an amazing showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. This is one of the studliest moments in Scripture. I mean, he just looks amazingly impressive. And he has this showdown with all these prophets. He's all by himself. God intervenes on his behalf. He proves God to be the true God. It's an amazing moment. And after that moment... Jezebel, the wicked queen, sends a message to him saying, I'm coming after you. You're as good as dead. Right after he just had this astounding victory because of this astounding victory. And 1 Kings 19 says that this mighty prophet who had just seen God's deliverance was afraid. And he ran for his life into the wilderness all by himself. And he comes to this old kind of shrubby broom tree thing and he falls down on his butt and just says to God Lord it is enough it is enough oh Lord take my life for I am no better than my forefathers here's a guy who is impressive in every respect who's proving himself to be above all else a man a human being who gets weary Jesus says to the disciples uh, in the other accounts of this, in Matthew and Mark, where they're asleep, he just says to them, boys, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I want to strike that tone as we introduce this topic, because if we forget anything, we must, we must never forget that the Lord is compassionate when it comes to our humanity. He knows we are but dust. That passage was read earlier during worship. Let me read it again. Psalm 103, 8 through 14. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, 
so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. So far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I'm speaking to men, I'm speaking to women. I just want you to understand you're a human being prone to weariness. And unfortunately, it's one of those things you can have and you can carry and you can walk in for quite some time and not actually know that it's happened. And because you're a sinful human being, your approach, like my approach, is is when you get weary, you've got to drop something, right? You've got to drop something. Here's here's what prideful, sinful people drop. They don't drop the stuff where the, the immediate consequences affect their reputation or their wealth, Right? They drop the stuff that doesn't appear to have any immediate consequences. Their walk with God. Right? They don't drop the stuff that brings them public attention and fame and so on and so forth. They drop the stuff that that doesn't appear to have any public fallout. I want you to know that this weariness is a problem for your soul. It's a, it's a real thing. You may be there as I'm describing it. You may even sense the Lord saying, oh, that's you. And I want you to see that that's a legitimate category. We should love each other and walk with each other with the understanding that that's a category we all walk in from time to time, but that it does have a danger to your soul. Well, that's related to the second point, because I do think there's more going on here than just weariness from the disciples. One commentator reminded me that these particular guys had spent many sleepless nights fishing, right? This wasn't only about them being sleepy. Uh, Jesus is about to get arrested. And when he gets arrested, I seriously doubt they went to bed. I would imagine they were up all night in anxiety. The point is, is that the high stress, that in, in high stress, sleep begins to be reshuffled to the bottom of the hierarchy of needs. In other words, It's not just because they were tired, though it is absolutely a contributing factor. And when you read all three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, you see, no question, weariness is a contributing factor. But I would suggest there's a second factor as well, and that is that they were fighting the wrong war. They were fighting the wrong war. It seems to me that they were asleep because they didn't see a threat. They were asleep because they were prepared to fight a different kind of war, and therefore missed and slept through the other war that was raging all around them. They were ready to fight. We know that. We know they were ready to fight. In a moment, Peter is just going to ginsu the ear off of, off of a high priest's servant, right? Now, Peter, this is just a, a moment, a detail worth noticing. Peter didn't just have a sword. He had a very sharp sword. Have you ever sharpened a knife with a piece of leather? like they would have back then. There's, a, there's, a, there's just a serious, there's an evil intent involved in, in doing this over and over and over and over again. So that by the time Peter's in the garden and he ginsues this guy's ear off, we understand he was ready to fight. He actually says earlier, I'm ready to die with you. I'm ready to go to prison with you. All of that's true. The problem is he was ready to fight an enemy that would stand up and announce that he was an enemy. A few years ago, uh, I read a book called Bush at War, written by Bob Woodward, and it was this inside view of the Bush administration dealing with the asymmetrical warfare that came as a result of 9-11. Essentially, the entire U.S. government was built around symmetrical warfare, was built around the idea of fighting an enemy that wore a uniform that announced itself as an enemy that had a name of a country behind it. And then 9-11 happened. And the whole concept of warfare, the whole definition of warfare had to shift to this asymmetrical kind where the enemy didn't wear a uniform and didn't announce his presence and didn't live up to the Geneva Convention and so on and so forth. The whole book is really about the pivoting of this giant machine called the U.S. Department of Defense into something that could fight an asymmetric enemy. Well, I think that's where the disciples were. They were absolutely 
ready to fight. Peter had no doubt spent time sharpening his sword. They had made preparations, both mental and physical, to fight an enemy that would come at them face to face. But their enemy, the true enemy, doesn't fight face to face. This is an enemy that tempts, that tricks, that comes with a kiss. And so I think another reason that they were asleep is because this weariness, this human weariness, was combined with a wrong view of war. Which was combined with the wrong understanding of the war that they were fighting. Ephesians 6, 10 says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. They had, we have an enemy that tempts. An enemy that stirs up an enemy within. An enemy without that stirs up an enemy within, the flesh. And I think the reason that these men were asleep was at least partially because they were ignorant of the war that was raging all around them. So you've got weariness combined with ignorance of the war that was raging all around them. What does this add up to? What does this being asleep actually lead to? What, what do they miss? What do they neglect because they're asleep? They neglected prayer. They neglected prayer. Let me read the text again. Listen for prayer. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from, uh, from them about a stone's throw and knelt and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. If you're a marker in your Bible person, it'd be interesting to underline the number of times the word pray or prayer shows up in that passage, in that very short passage. Here's the deal. What is the net effect of men asleep? of the men of the church asleep? What, what's really being neglected when the men of the church are asleep because of weariness and a misunderstanding of the war? Prayer. What are the men of the church actually neglecting functionally? Prayer. What does your sleepiness, men, lead to? Prayerlessness. What does your lack of understanding of the war you fight lead to? Your lack of watchfulness lead to? It leads to prayerlessness. When we become prayerless, whatever else is going on, we can know for sure that our souls are not healthy. You can, you can absolutely know for sure that if you are prayerless, your souls are not healthy. If you're neglecting prayer, something's wrong. Now, I know many of you have been dealing with sick kids. And part of dealing with sick kids is playing name that discharge, right? It, it's amazing. It's amazing what you can tell about the health of a person based on what is coming out of them. My mom's first question, this is embarrassing to admit, but my mom's first question whenever I was not feeling well was always, have you gone number two? In, in my childhood experience, there were two imminent threats at all times. The Cold War... <laughs> And constipation. <laughs> right? That was always the... <laughs> I was constantly asked about that particular issue. You know, what's interesting is, is that you can actually, as you deal with little kids, those are the basic questions you ask. It's like, well, what's, what's coming out and how does it look? <laughs> right? Right? What does the stuff coming out of the nose look like? Describe it to me in, in viscosity and color and so on and so forth. You know, the Bible is amazingly clear that what comes out of your mouth was in your heart. Right? 
And, and I want to introduce that, that in reality, uh, not so much growing up in the 80s, that constipation, uh, physical constipation was not the issue uh, that, that stood next to the Cold War. But I want to suggest to you that if you are prayerless, if prayer is not constantly coming out of your heart, you're not well. You're, you're, you're probably asleep. You probably don't understand the war. And you're also probably tired. Then prayer should be one of the basic definitions of biblical masculinity. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus doesn't say pray. He says, keep watch. Keep watch. Masculinity keeps watch through prayer. And Luke, he says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Prayer is important for avoiding temptation. Let's just put it this way. Prayer is actually meant to cure weariness. The, the problem is, is that, that we neglect prayer when we're tired because it's the easiest thing to neglect. We neglect prayer when we're spiritually weary because there are so many other things that if we neglect, we feel the consequences immediately. And we do not realize how devastating prayerlessness is on our souls. Because prayer is actually given to us by God to restore us from our weariness. Yes, weariness is a real thing. It's a real state. And guess what? It's not going to be cured by another vacation, by, 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 by more sleep. Those aren't going to be the ultimate cures for the weariness that, that's the deep weariness. The deep weariness is cured by time with your father. You know, depending on how you learned prayer, this is really important. Uh, this is me, this is, I'm growing out of this, but I feel like I, I want to say this. I think there's people here that, that need to hear this. Depending on how you learned prayer, it may be that prayer itself feels especially wearying. Prayer from the wrong perspective can just be a profound discouragement. First of all, there are a few things that you're going to be as bad at as praying. Right? Like, this is an activity that none of us have a natural gifting in. And, and all my type A'ers out here, you hate to do stuff you're not good at. You hate to fail. You hate to, you hate to notice your weakness. And prayer just has this way of reminding us that, well, we're just, I'm just not very good at this. And secondly, you know, we're so sinful. Our prayers are riddled with sin. Our prayers are riddled with sin. So there's this way in which when we pray, especially if we're looking at it from the wrong perspective, prayer feels tiring and wearying and something like we would never go to prayer to feel encouragement. Because for many of us, we feel discouragement when, they pray, when we pray. The truth is, if you feel like prayer is not a comfort to you, and you very well may, and there's a very good chance that you were taught prayer from Pharisees and accusers and your own evil conscience. Prayer is not meant to be something that makes you feel worse. It's meant to be something that brings you comfort and joy and thankfulness and courage. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything. What's the cure? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Does prayer bring you peace? Does prayer bring you restoration? First Peter 5, 6-7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Psalm, 120, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. 
Friends, prayers given to you by Jesus, we'll talk more about this in a moment, prayers given to you to be energizing and encouraging and restorative. And let me just tell you that if when you go to prayer, you think about how you're doing it wrong or what you need to do before you can pray, you've completely misunderstood the gospel. Because the gospel gives you access and changes you through the access. The gospel gives you acceptance and changes you through acceptance. You become a son of God, then you start acting like a son of God. You don't earn your way into the kingdom. Your prayer time should be as beautiful and as sweet as what we see Jesus say. The very first word, the only word that really matters in prayer, by the way, in verse 42 of Luke 22. Only word that really matters in prayer. Father. It's the only word that really matters. It's the only word that really keeps you from praying the way you ought to pray and finding the encouragement and the comfort you desperately need. It's just to say to the God of the universe, Father. Now, I went on a 12-mile bike ride yesterday, humble brag. And I was praying through this, and I want to tell you something, and I'm, this is probably not going to come out exactly right, but some of you are going to say, but my father was just a terrible father, and this whole idea of God's fatherhood is, 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 is not that great, and so on and so forth. And I want to tell you something. I had a good dad. I didn't have a perfect dad, but I had a good dad. It has not helped me as much as you may think it has or would to accept the love of the father. Um, I want you to, in that moment, if you had a bad father, I just want you to consider a second possibility. You're a stubborn sinner who doesn't want to draw near to God. And you don't want to accept the unconditional love of God because you, like every other sinner, loves to boast. And this isn't so much about your dad as this is about your flesh. Draw near to the father whom your soul longs for. Man, I could get you in a room and if you gave me 30 minutes, I'd probably have you crying to talk to you about your father. And what I could tell you within that 30 minutes is he was never going to be enough, even if he was perfect. He was a thimble full of what you needed an ocean full of. What makes prayer, what transforms prayer into energy and comfort and hope and joy. The idea that you call upon the creator of the universe. And you get to call him dad. Abba, father. Verse 44 says that Jesus being in agony. Prayed more earnestly. Do you hear that? He prayed more earnestly in agony. He didn't neglect prayer because of, of all that was coming around him. He sought prayer out. He prioritized prayer because he needed to be comforted. He went to prayer as his source for comfort because the beginning of his prayer, verse 42, starts with, Father. And the key to experiencing a prayer life that is full of encouragement, full of life-giving reinvigoration, full of fresh energy to face the world. The key to experiencing a prayer life that makes you ready to take on your day is through Christ believe that you're praying to a God who both exists and rewards those who earnestly seek you, him a God who calls you son and whom you get to call father and if your prayer life is seasoned with anything other than that it's not gospel centered prayer life he isn't just tolerating you he isn't looking at everything you do with criticism. He sees all your sin and he loves you completely, unendingly, steadfastly. You should feel comfort when you pray. But prayer is also helpful to keeping our eyes on the actual battle that's in front of us. Prayer will actually make us ready to fight. Prayer will actually allow us to fight. And this is that unique kind of seasoned masculinity that may not make sense 
necessarily to every woman in the room, but this sense of this this sense of intimacy with the Father as we practice to kill something. Right? This this sense of I'm with my dad and we are working on winning the war. That's that's this unique moment that the disciples are are missing because they're weary and because they have their mind on the wrong war. They're missing this second piece. It's it's not as if men, men, it's not as if God's calling you necessarily, although this is certainly completely acceptable and masculine in itself, it's not necessarily calling you to wallow in a full-fledged Hallmark movie in your prayer life. You can be his son and feel absolute love and acceptance in Christ and also train for war. That's, that's what God has for us as men. Jesus says to them, he, he goes to them three times. Final time, he comes to them and says, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. They're about to enter into the war. And Jesus says, well, you've slept through prayer three times. And now the war's at your doorstep. What do you do? Pray. Remember, we're not fighting an enemy that stands toe to toe. We're fighting an enemy that tempts. Earlier, I read from Ephesians 6. Let me finish. Let me finish that. So it said earlier, you know, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So how do we, how do we do this, man? How do we fight this fight? How do we wage this war? Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication to all this for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. It's interesting to note that prayer is seen in verse 18 of Ephesians 6 as the animating force behind the wielding of every weapon listed. Every weapon is listed, the sword, the breastplate, the helmet, the boots. How are those weapons, how is that armament wielded? Praying at all times in the Spirit. It's not necessarily enough to hold a shield. You've got to lift the shield. It's not necessarily enough to have a sword on the shelf. You've got to swing the sword. It's not necessarily enough to have boots of the gospel. You've got to move the boots into the mission field. And what animates the sword and the boots and the shield? Prayer. Prayer is the animating force behind those weapons. And if you don't dedicate yourself to prayer, you just can't be on watch in the way that you should be. And I honestly believe that there's a part of us that's just a human weariness and you're going to need to be reminded and trained and coached and growing in prayer. But I honestly believe if you could just remove the silent criticisms that happen in your prayer life and you just said, in Christ, I'm yours. And in Christ, I come before you now with sinful and perfect prayers that need to be washed in the same blood that all the other sins I've committed today need to be washed in. And I draw near to the throne of grace. And I believe that you're my father, that I'm your son. And that together, we're called to rule and subdue. So what does this look like? What's the practical application? Well, first thing is this. The gospel makes this all possible. The gospel makes all this possible. Jesus, uh, it says in Hebrews 2.10, through suffering, brought many sons to glory. You can't call the creator of the universe, the holy God, the all-consuming fire. You can't call him father without Jesus. You can't approach the throne of grace without Jesus. Let's just be 100% clear here. 
One of the reasons why we are so apt to think of God in other forms is that we are so apt to forget the gospel. And I think there's even a piece of us that would rather boast in ourselves. Uh, well, I don't think, I know. There's this piece of us that would rather boast in ourselves than draw near to a throne full of grace. We would rather be poor with rights than rich with privileges. So when we pray, we start at the cross. And we say, it is finished. He's made an end to all my sin. I've been brought near because Jesus was cast off. He who knew no sin became sin so that I could become the righteousness of God. He experienced suffering to bring me a son to glory. God has started the gospel. Here's what I recommend. Preach the gospel to yourself when you pray, as you pray. Lord Jesus, Lord God, Father, in and of myself, I can't draw near to you right now. But there is a name by which I can be saved and have been saved. And I hold that shield of faith up and, and, fling, and, and, and resist those fiery darts that say, oh, you're a fraud, you're a fake, you're this. Say, Father, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And then you keep going, and then some more fiery darts are going to come in and say, Father, he who knew no sin became sin so that I could become the righteousness of God. The gospel has to season your whole prayer life. Because there will be so many moments in prayer when you will be tempted to draw away from the Father. The second one, this is huge, is, uh, is, is the importance of public prayer. 1 Timothy 2.8, if, if that verse doesn't stand out to you, it should, man. It says, this is where Paul says, I want men everywhere lifting holy hands in prayer. If you wanted to ask what the most practical reason for men neglecting prayer in the modern church is, it's this. We don't gather enough to pray in groups. And this is tragic because we have technological means of doing that over a conference call, you know, at 8 p.m. after we put the kids to bed. It's nothing to call two people, you know, on, on your phone. Some of you older guys don't know how to do this, but, but you just ask a younger guy. They can call and, and, and put two people on the phone at the same time and you can pray together. At 8 o'clock on a Tuesday, the truth is, is that you were meant, just as you were meant to hear the word in a public context and worship God in a public context, you were created to pray with other people. Group prayer with the intention of let's get together and pray. Not let's get together to do four things, prayer being one of them, but let's spend a moment getting together with the express purpose of praying. Let's turn 30 minutes that we have for lunch into a time of prayer. Getting together to pray, men, is God's biblical command. It is also, by the way, the way that you learn how to pray. If you're not good at it, it's a skill like anything else. And spending that time with other brothers who spend time in prayer, that's a massive way to upgrade and transform your prayer life. There's another application I want to point you to, and that's 1 Peter 3.7. 1 Peter 3.7 is where Peter says, you know, guys, uh, treat your wife well. Live with her in a compassionate and understanding way. If she's a co-heir of grace with you. And then he says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And what does he mean by that? What does he mean when he says, treat your wife well, so that your prayers may not be hindered? Well, it's pretty clear what he means. He means, don't be a jerk to your wife. Right? It's consistently, actually, throughout that passage, it just comes up in more subtle ways later, where, where essentially Peter keeps referring to this idea that you need to treat people well. Because that's just a basic expression of, of, of what prayer is about. You're an object of mercy. You're an object of grace. Treat others with mercy and grace. So, so the most expressed meaning of 1 Peter 3.7 is don't be a jerk to your wife and apologize when you are. You will find, you will find that if you just start asking that question, have I been short? Have I been cross? Have I been angry? Have I been impatient? 
and you start just saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, self-correcting in real time, that thing will change quickly, but your prayer life will change also. I have friends who have suddenly found freedom from sexual sin. And their prayer life is, is just so different now. Don't take what I just said there to say you've got to clean something up before you pray. That's not what I'm saying. Pray. But as you pray, pray informed with the scriptures. But there's another piece of this idea in 1 Peter 3, 7 I want to draw your attention to. It isn't only that your wife's a co-heir. It isn't only be nice to your wife uh, so that your prayers aren't hindered. I think it's also the, the, the language in that passage makes you think, this is my wife. She's a co-heir of grace. And if I'm jerk to her, we, we won't pray together like we should. The implication being that there's another strata of this, another layer of this that just comes down to this. Be nice to your spouse so that the two of you can spend good time in prayer together. Praying together, husband and wife, is a game changer, quite honestly. It's a game changer to do that. Now, once again, I have to be the, the I have to bring out the Pharisee and the, the accusational fly slaughter. Because right now, some of you are thinking, oh man, I've, it's been 20 years and I've never prayed with my wife or it's been 10 years or five years or whatever. I know. And it would just be weird now. Man up and be weird. You walk around in your underwear. It's already weird. <laughs> it's okay. Just be weird. Just be awkward. Just say, I've, I've neglected this. I knew I should do it. I didn't. Please forgive me. Can we pray together? I met with a group of guys, almost all of them new Christians for a number of years on Wednesdays. And uh, I was just trying to get them to pray with their wives at all. And so I created Pray With Your Woman Wednesdays. We would meet on Wednesdays for men's group. We would do a Bible study together. We would talk about life. And then I'd be like, okay, don't forget, it's Pray With Your Woman Wednesdays. And these guys would come home, and, and this was the excuse they gave. They're like, hey, uh, preacher said we have to pray together. <laughs> hey, I'm okay with that. Husbands, go to your wives today and say, well, you know, I, I know that the Bible says I'm supposed to listen to the guy that, that's given me God's word, and so he says we should pray together, so let's pray together. It doesn't have to be any more explanation than that. Spending time, let me just talk about some practical outworkings of what it means when you actually pray with your spouse. Number one, there are going to be moments in life that have these really big uncertainties about them. And they will actually tax your marriage down to the bone if you aren't praying about them. Because you're going to both walk around with big question marks and anxiety. You're not going to know what the answers are to these big problems you have, these big questions, these big worries. And where that's going to wind up, James 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it that you, you, you covet and you desire, but you don't have? So there's this sense of, un, uh, sense of lack, the sense of I don't have, the sense of I don't know. Where does that lead if it doesn't lead to prayer? It leads to fighting and quarreling. These big questions that are kind of on the background of your marriage, like, hey, uh, we don't have any health life insurance, or we can't afford groceries this week, or, hey, how are we going to pay for college, or, or, you know, I really wish you would, you know, try to be healthier, whatever those big questions are, those are just hanging out there. Those are going to lead to all sorts of relational friction if you do not bring those to the Father together. So bring those big, uncertain questions to the father the truth is is that if you are obedient with the missional element of your marriage and you're using your marriage as a tool to proclaim the gospel you're going to build relationships with people who are really 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 lost and you're going to feel how finite and limited you are as a, as as a husband and wife to tell someone who needs christ about jesus to help them to see their need so if there's a missional component of your marriage, which there, should, which there should be, prayer will naturally be needed in that missional component. Sometimes things aren't right between a husband and wife, but there's no obvious reason. Sometimes things just aren't clicking the way that you'd like them to click, and there's no obvious reason. Here's what's going to happen if you don't pray. You're going to try to talk it out. Okay, talk it out is prayer for people who don't have God. 
with many words is much sin. Talking it out is not going to fix your problem. You are just going to invent stuff. It's not going to end well. Talking it out, pray it out. Go before the Lord together and say, God, something's just not right. I don't know what it is. And it would be really easy for me to try to find something to, to assign blame. And it would be really easy for her to try to find something and assign blame. But the truth is, is we actually don't know what's happening right now. We just know that things aren't right. Would you please help us? Maybe even just by making them right again. We don't necessarily even need to know. That you would just make them right. That you would just heal us. That you would just care for us. That you would change the, the mood in the room. That you would change the chemistry once again, Lord. If you try to do the old-fashioned talk it out, what you're doing is in that moment is you're treating the other person as God. You're saying, I know if I can just share my heart enough with you, you'll make me happy. <laughs> no? Nope. That's not what's going to happen. Nope. You share your heart to the one who can make you happy. And you do that together. You know, Jesus gives us this promise. Wherever two or more are gathered, there I am in the midst. How many times, you know the, the button on Jeopardy, how many times do I wish in my marriage of 22 years, instead of having another, add another paragraph to the conversation we have that's going nowhere and helping no one, we just went and prayed. We just stopped and we just prayed. How many times do I wish the reflex that I had in my marriage was to go to God and not to make a God out of my spouse or out of myself? I read this quote this week and I thought about how many of you have pretty good marriages in the world, in the eyes, in the eyes of the world, maybe in my eyes. If you have a pretty good marriage, I you be especially mindful of what I just said. Pretty good marriage means a lot of prayer, okay? If God's blessed you with a pretty good marriage, it means you should be praying all the more. You guys should be an unstoppable task force of prayer for this church, for the kingdom. You can add me to that list. This quote says, We've forgotten the gracious hand which preserves us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with so much success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and persevering grace and too proud to pray to the God that made us. I've... I want to warn those of you, encourage those of you that have great marriages, and many of you do. Could you, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of this church, could you commit today to being pronounced in your priority of prayer as a husband and wife? Could you take all the blessings and all the capital that's been built up all those years and say, this needs to be a priority for us. We need, to, we need to make much of this blessing. Men, I want you to wake up. I want you to feel alive again and energetic. I want you to feel ready to take on the world. I want you to, to walk with your father in his warfare. And to do that, I want to ask you, Will you allow this day to be this bookmark in your approach to prayer that said, you know, this is something I want to radically change in my life. This is something I want to see made for the better. Will a few phone calls or spontaneous meetings happen as a result of this message where a group of men get together just to pray? Will there be phone calls where groups of men get together to pray? Will men approach their wives at the end of this message this week and say, let's just start praying together more. It's okay if it's awkward. It's okay if it's weird. Let's just start praying together more. Oh, I have so much hope that if you will draw near to this God, he will earnestly, if you earnestly draw near to this God, he will richly reward you.
Let's pray. Lord, may our marriages be these these just these places for prayer to just um, both 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 scheduled prayer and spontaneous prayer just emerge lord i 'm thankful that even yesterday, my wife and I had some scary news from a friend, and we were able in that moment just to hit the prayer button just right then let 's pray and go to you and say, "Lord, you have this under control. this is what we ask you to do for us. this is what we ask you to do for our friends." Lord, thank you for the gift of prayer. Lord, in many ways, my life, my prayer life is almost entirely uh, informed by the people I've prayed with. And I'm so thankful that in marriage, you've given me someone I can pray with. That's a huge blessing. More than anything, though, Lord, I'm thankful that I get to call the God of the universe, Father. Uh, All of the noise, a lot of it, true, gets drowned out by your love. When I go before you as the perfect Father and feel your unconditional love bought for me, with the precious blood of your son. You demonstrated your love for us and that while we were still sinners, you gave your son up to pay the price for our sin and to remedy our estrangement, to reconcile us to yourself. Praise you, Father, for making prayer possible. Lord, let us luxuriate in this great privilege called prayer. In the name of the one who made it possible for me to say this prayer and every other prayer in the past and in the future, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This table this morning is about access and adoption.